Episode 9, Australia, Part 2. Hello and welcome back for this Patreon-funded episode. Sally, the first Patreon supporter, chose a second episode for Australia as part of her perks, so here we are. We'll do a little recap of what's happened so far, and we'll continue on to more of the story. If you remember, in our last Australia episode, we saw the rise and then eventual death of Captain Cook. Rising from a poor farm boy to a leader of world sailing expeditions, and then finally being killed in the Hawaiian Islands during some sort of dispute with the native people there. Well, his legacy in Australia comes from his second journey, where he found Australia's eastern coast, and he made a pretty good map, as was his custom of the area. They'd be using that for what they're going to do next, which is what we'll talk about in this episode. While we talked about Captain Cook, we also considered some of the situation with crime and transportation in the UK, Transportation being the transporting of criminals to convict colonies. So if you want to go over all that again to refresh your memory, go back and listen to episode one on Captain Cook. We are going to do just a very brief review here at the beginning. So around the time of Cook's discovery of Australia, the U.S. was rebelling. And that was Britain's first option for convict transportation. It was now closed. Uh, There was some discussion about various places and eventually Australia was agreed upon as the best option. And with the convict overcrowding becoming a crisis, they didn't have time to send another scouting mission or anything. They just pretty much said, we've got this map and let's do it. Arthur Phillip was made the admiral slash governor of the first expedition of convicts. But who was he? Well, that's what we're going to go into now. The two main sources I'll be using for today's episode are The Fatal Shore, which is a history of Australia's founding, and then Arthur Phillip, Sailor, Mercenary, Governor, Spy. They're both very well researched from the number of pages and quality of primary sources I found at the back of them. Uh, I do prefer the latter, though, because it's written with a little more focus on Arthur Phillip, obviously, as it's more about him rather than about the general idea of Australia's founding. So it did have a good many more details than the Fatal Shore had, as it was a lot more generic. Sailor, Mercenary, Spy was also written a little bit more like a narrative rather than a history book. So I would say if you're going to choose one of those, I would go with Arthur Phillips, Sailor, Mercenary, Governor, Spy. Uh, It also has some pretty thorough background on things going around at the time. So that really helps you to kind of just drop down in the middle of this era and at least be able to know a little bit of what's going on and not be totally lost. I usually include all the books I use on the book list I'm making on bookshop.org. I've been doing that for the last three episodes, but they don't have one for this book, so I won't be putting it on the book list there. But bookshop.org is a website that basically puts together lots of small bookshops into one big online marketplace. So it's kind of trying to compete with Amazon and the others, but helping out the little guys. So I'll have a link to that on the webpage or on the episode description here if you want to go check it out. So let's get back to Arthur Phillip. He was 48 at the time of the journey of the first fleet to Australia. He was born in 1738. He was born of a German father who had immigrated to England as a language teacher and an English mother. Sometime in his very young years, his father was killed in naval service, and his mother must have pushed her cousin, the captain of a naval ship, to take him on as a captain's servant. So in 1747, at nine years old, Philip was put on a ship and began his apprenticeship with his uncle. 
This is similar to the course that every kind of officer takes. But James Cook did this much later in life, whereas Philip was doing this at the normal age of a very young boy. Well, by 1751, at the age of 13, he was admitted to a charity school for children whose fathers had been killed in the Navy. And at this school, the children were basically treated as if they were already on a ship. Rations, bedding, all other things were all based on what you would find on a ship. And the education was, as you would expect, very focused on life at sea. This lasted for about three years, and then he was sent off to begin a more formal apprenticeship. His first apprenticeship was on a whaling boat. He was the, the helper for the captain there. They spent a lot of time up in the North Pole whaling. Uh, as you can probably imagine, whaling was not the greatest job around. They were way up near the North Pole. It was super cold. There's these huge whales that they're trying to kill. Blood is everywhere. I'm sure it was not a fun thing to do compared to other apprentice jobs that somebody might have had. Well, thankfully for him, unthankfully for all the people who died in the war, the Seven Years' War was right on the horizon, about a, a little less than a year into his internship, or his apprenticeship, and so he was able to pretty quickly uh, jump off that whaling ship and head for the British Navy again. Uh, if you want to know more about the Seven Years' War, it really was the, kind of the first real world war. There are tons of podcasts and other resources like it, and I'll put those on the mini-sode if you want to go look at those later. You can always just look around online and find lots of stuff about it. So, yeah, he headed for the for the British Navy and joined with his uncle and went on again as a captain's servant with his uncle, continuing his apprenticeship. Philip served with his uncle for around four years before getting promoted to midshipman. From there, he began his climb up to his final position as admiral. One of the battles that Philip fought in was the Siege of Havana by the English in 1762. Havana was one of the most important Spanish colonies in the New World. If you don't know, that's in Cuba. And one of the naval actions is actually recorded in a painting of a, na of a naval painter of the time. I've got that picture up on the webpage for the episode if you want to go take a look at it. If you look close enough, you might actually be able to see Philip, but probably not. Uh, the siege was eventually successful. It was a really bloody affair with over 10,000 men killed, most of them by disease. Uh, I'm sure this must have had a big impact on him as he cared for his ships and fleets. He did do a pretty good job of staving off a lot of disease. Uh, by 1763, the war was over and Philip, as a lieutenant now, was put on half pay and allowed to basically go on as a free man. He married a rich widow and lived with her as an, as an owner of an estate for six years until they were separated, which was the version of divorce available to normal people in England at the time. According to their prenuptial agreement and the separation agreement, Philip gave up all rights to all of his ex-wife's money and belongings, and he was just back to being a lieutenant with half pay, so he was badly in need of some income. Well, you'd think that would have put him straight back onto a ship in the Navy, but in 1769... This six years after he'd gotten out, he got permission from the Navy to go to France, where he stayed for most of the next five years. Now, the official report says that his move was for health reasons, but the author of Sailor Mercenary Governor Spy makes a compelling case throughout the book that he was actually being sent there to spy on French shipyards. It would take me about half our episode to make it make sense, 
So I'll just recommend you read the book if you want to know how he pieced all that together. For about five years, he was back and forth between France and England until the Third Colonial Wars happened between Spain and Portugal. Now, Spain and, um, and England were, as you'd expect, uh, rivals in many things in the New World since England was just invading Havana. But Portugal and Spain were also rivals in the New World. They were constantly struggling over South America. Portugal had Brazil and some other areas around Brazil, and Spain held most of the rest of South America. One of the main sources of their angst was a place called Colonia de Sacramento, which was just across the Rio de la Plata, from none other than Buenos Aires, which was one of the star cities of our Argentina episode. This city was owned by the Portuguese and was a great place for British merchants to get access to the illegal trade among the Spanish colonies, who, if you listened to the Argentina episode already, you may remember they were always trying to get around those trade regulations that were put in place by the Spanish. A new war started up over this outpost, and England was looking for people to send to help Portugal, but also to help gather information about the coastal towns and cities in the Americas to help prepare just in case England ever wanted to make a move itself. Well, Philip received high recommendations from the ministry in England, and he was given a ship of the line to command. Uh, this was Pretty common for foreign officers to be loaned out to allies during war and to be given a higher command than they would be entitled to otherwise. His official job was to help the Portuguese with the war, and that went pretty well. He made a very good impression on the Portuguese superiors in Brazil, and he was put in charge of the naval defense of Colonia from a year, or four year, from 1775 to 1776, where he did his job well. And you can be sure that being so close to Buenos Aires, he was doing his best job of mapping and charting the area for the British. Now, if you've listened to the Argentina episode, your antennas should really be twitching at this point because this information that Philip collected here would be used by the British in their double invasion of Buenos Aires, which eventually kind of was the catalyst for the Spanish losing most of southern South America. So you'll have to listen to the Argentina episode to figure out how that happened. We don't have time to talk about it now, but we're definitely getting a connection here. The work that Philip did uh, was probably instrumental accidentally in starting this revolutionary period in South America, at least in the south of South America. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Brazil and uh, Arthur Philip. So back to Brazil we go. He helped the Portuguese fleet in the area, and the highlight of the expedition was the capture of one of Spain's top-of-the-line ships, which had gotten separated from its squadron. He was eventually able to sail back to Portugal, and from there headed back to England, where he was consulted often in the British plans to do those invasions I talked about earlier. Eventually, other more direct threats reared their heads, and the British were forced to call off those invasions, or they would have been much earlier. Uh, they actually happened in the early 1800s instead because of all the other fighting that was going on with the British and the French and the Spanish. Now, After that, Philip achieved the rank of captain in early 1783. Uh, if you're keeping track, that's that's around uh, eight years after he started working in, uh, in, in Brazil. He was able to take over a ship of the line for the British Navy, which was kind of one of the main ships. It's like the precursor to the battleship, basically. His first mission was to sail as part of a four-ship reinforcement group 
to help the British fleet in India fight against the French. Well, the other three ships eventually had to turn back because they were so damaged from a storm, and so Phillips was the only ship that eventually completed its mission. The problem was, not long after they had left England in the first place, a ceasefire had been signed between the French and the English. So when he finally got to the Indian Ocean Fleet, he was just ordered to head back to England with a squadron of other ships. During the years 1783 to 1786, he was sent on more spying missions inside of France, which are a little bit better documented, so they're not quite as much uh, having to piece together things as the first one was. And he did that, kind of spying on the naval yards and trying to see what France was building there. He was called back from this because a new emergency had cropped up, and that emergency was that the prisons were totally overflowed and there was nowhere to transport the prisoners. So after way too long debating, they finally decided on Australia and were in a big hurry. So they basically just threw all this together in a most haphazard way at the last minute. And I guess they just trusted Philip to be able to handle it. So if you're making a trip across town, you know, it wouldn't be that difficult to just throw things any way you want into your ship and, and go across. But going on a journey that was almost a year long, well, you needed a lot more things that were organized. One of the biggest problems was the contractor they used was corrupt and just trying to swindle as much as possible out of this situation. Thankfully, Philip was competent at his job, and he made sure, after many delays, to get as much as he could get on the ship, at least enough to keep there from being mass casualties as they made their way to the next port. Even with that being done, there were still some difficulties that were not able to be fixed. The first of those was that the prisoner list was basically just a bunch of small-time criminals, and they were being sent to Australia to basically form a new prisoner colony. And they basically like knew nothing about doing that. These were just criminals chosen at random, it seemed like, with little thought to how they would do creating a colony in a new land. For instance, there were no carpenters in the first group out of the convicts. There was only one fisherman and only one gardener. You'd think you'd want more of those kinds of people trying to set up a new colony in a new land, but it seems like they just were not overly organized at this point. The second thing was that the ships were packed literally like sardines. You've heard the phrase, packed as sardines, but this was really like that. Um, it, just to give you a point of reference, in America today, you know, a submarine, it's a pretty packed situation that we think of. It's, it's really tight quarters and all that. But on an American submarine, there's around 40 tons of ship per crew member. Cruise liners are like 250 tons per passenger. Well, these ships had about three tons of ship per person. They were just super packed. If you think about the way slave ships were, if you've ever seen pictures of those from the Atlantic slave trade, that's basically what you're looking at. So it was ripe for disease and for all kinds of other things to just run through the convicts. The third of those was that there was not enough ammunition for the Marines on board these convict ships. You can imagine that this was a very tightly held secret as they spent their time getting to the next port where they would hopefully be able to get some ammunition for their guns. Well, like I said, he was able to sort some of these out, at least the ones that would avoid mass casualties, but those three had to keep going until they got all the way across the Atlantic. 
So early on the morning of May 13th, the ships finally sailed away. Crew packed like sardines, convict guards without ammunition, and just enough food and rations to make it to Australia, as long as nothing went wrong. Of course, they'd pick up more of all that stuff at their ports as they went, but they would have to actually make it to that first port first. Uh, this group of ships would come to be called the First Fleet. So if you go looking up something about Australia's founding, the First Fleet, you'll see that a lot. That's what they're referring to, this fleet of ships, admiraled by Arthur Phillip. Uh, their path went along the normal trade routes, where currents and winds could help move them speedily across the world. So they spent a little over two weeks going down the west coast of Europe until they hit the northwest coast of Africa, where they stopped at the Canary Islands. From there, they spent about two months getting down to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and from there, another six weeks to head to Cape Town in South Africa. Their final leg of the trip was two months to Botany Bay in Australia, and then a few hours from Botany Bay to Port Jackson. This is thought to be the first trip of its kind, transporting prisoners like this to the opposite side of the world. It's had its share of problems. Although the fleet seemed to be pretty well managed, there was very little death on board. Uh, one of those problems that was a common problem in this time period was bilge water. So the bilge of a ship is like the lowest point on the ship, basically. Like if you look at a ship, it's usually like a V-shape, kind of in that very bottom V part. Well, that's the place where the left and the right side of the ship meet. Well, as you'd imagine, the ships are watertight, so water and other disgusting things would eventually make their way down there, and there'd just be like this sitting water uh, Yeah, that wasn't real pretty. If you look it up today, there are even pictures of it today in ships, and it looks pretty disgusting today. There's salt water, fresh water, oil, chemicals, all kind of mixing together into this black, watery blech. Well, during this time period, it was much worse than that. They usually had excrement, dead rats, vomit, all kinds of things inside it, and they were quite stinky. While they had bilge pumps, the fact that they were all cramped in really like sardines made it so that those bilge pumps did not really do much to help. Um, it's said that on this trip, bulkheads, clothes, and everything else on the ship basically turned black from the fumes coming up from the bilge water. When I lived in China, there were these public bathrooms that were basically just big troughs in the ground. And as soon as you walked in, the smell was just like slapping you in the face. Uh, I imagine it was, it was something like that, but just much worse. Oh my. And that cliffhanger is where we will end today's episode. I know it's terrible. I did that with the other Australia episode, but there's just too much... And uh, I have real life that I need to attend to with my wife and family. So we will continue this on next week and learn about uh, what actually happened on their journey to Australia and in Australia for the first four years of their life there. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. If you have any questions, send me a message on whatever social media you've got, or go to the website at langforlife.com slash founders. That's four, like the number four. Lang, like language, four, and then life.com slash founders. And I've got a little chat box there you can talk to me on if you want. All right. I'll talk to you again next week, if not sooner. <laughs>